You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 59, Time. Did you ever notice how sometimes time seems to pass very slowly? And other times, time seems to pass more quickly. Well, today, we're going to talk about the psychology of time. Jim, time is really a very abstract thing, is it not? How, how do our minds conceptualize time? One of the really neat things found in psychology is that we tend to think about abstract things in terms of more concrete bodily things. What does that mean? Well, if you think of something abstract, like a memory, for example, we tend to think and talk about it as though it were an object. This is, this is the metaphorical mind idea. So think about how we talk about memories. We talk about losing a memory or having a memory. And normally, we'll use the word lose to refer to a physical thing, like your keys, right? So we think about it like it's a physical thing to help us understand the abstract thing. That makes sense, but what does this have to do with time? Well, time being an abstract thing that you can't really see or touch, to help us understand it, we think of it often in terms of, say, space, for the most part. Space, like not like outer space, but actual physical around a space, right? Yeah, like the space between things and like distances and that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, not only do we think about times in terms of space, but we think of time going in a particular direction through space. So think about graphs you see in science, for example. Often there's an axis for time, right? So if you have a time axis, it's always going left to right. That's true. And it uh, turns out there's a reason for this. And this is interesting. When I studied theater directing, and there's also a notion of this in film, uh, I was taught that if you want to represent good motion on the screen, like motion that the audience will interpret as being positive, then you make it go left to right on the stage as the audience sees it. And bad motion goes from right to left. Wow, that's fascinating. I never even thought about that. That's, is that can you show us, give us some examples of this? Yeah. Um, so if you look at a lot of movies, for example, the hero, when they are moving it, they're often moving left to right on the screen. So you watch The Wizard of Oz. Dorothy is walking left to right on the screen, uh, I think every time except one. I think I only counted one time when Dorothy was moving uh, a, a counter to this. Uh, another example is the Matrix movies, right? So Neo always gets in a fight with Agent Smith or something. They always run at each other, okay? Uh, Neo is always running from the left, and Agent Smith is always running from the right. So what is, what's the reason for this? Does it have anything to do with the fact that we, in English at least, read um, from left to right? Yeah, that's exactly it. So um, they did one experiment where they took a bunch of pictures of things in process. So a whole banana, a half-eaten banana, a banana peel, for example. And then they asked, they just gave people like a stack of these pictures and they said, just put them on the desk in the correct order. And people who speak languages that are written left to right put the pictures going left to right, just as we see in um, graphs representing time going from the left is in the past and the right is in the future. But people who spoke Hebrew and Arabic, which are written languages that go in the opposite direction, they place the pictures in order the other way. So would you predict that people in like theater folks who write Hebrew or Arabic would think good motion goes right to left on the stage? <laughs> Yes, that would be the prediction. Nobody's ever tested that as far as I know. But uh, a really cool thing is if you look at the Federal Express logo in English, if you look carefully, you can see that there's a, a white arrow pointing right. 
and it's hidden in the negative space. It's in the um, uh, the F. Wait a minute. No, I think I, uh, I looked it up. I think it's, it's, it's yeah, in the, it's the EX. EX. Yeah. Yeah. So it, you don't even see it unless no. you really look, right? But I'm uh, we're we're going to have that as the image for the uh, this episode. So if you look at your phone, you might see it. But um, if you Google FedEx in Hebrew or Arabic, um, it doesn't it doesn't fit nearly as nicely. Uh, the E and the X naturally make an arrow, but they they managed to put in an arrow in the Hebrew and Arabic FedEx logos, and the arrow is going in the opposite direction, just like you would predict by the direction of their language. That is absolutely wild. I, I honestly, in preparation for this, I looked it up, and I had never even noticed it before, um, that it's there's definitely this white arrow. <laughs> um, uh, P.S. is FedEx going to um, sponsor this uh, episode? Uh, we're 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 sending messages f- over. <laughs> <laughs> we're communicating. FedEx, when you absolutely positively need funding for your podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't think of a good good reason why. But anyway, um, so back to this. Back to this idea about language and time. Very few languages actually have writing that goes right to left right? Yes, that's true. So why is that, right? Why are most of them left left to right? I don't think we really know. I'm going to speculate a little bit. One is that, you know, written language was only invented about four times, thereabouts, and every other written language is inspired by and descended from those four. Uh, so in China, in the Middle East or a European area, there was one in Mesoamerica, like the Aztec, you know, um, glyphs or whatever. But written language is really not natural. It's That's why we have to teach people. That's why literacy is a problem. You have to teach people how to read and write. You don't have to teach them how to talk. They'll learn how to talk on their own. And so written language is a cultural artifact. And it was obviously not very hard to come up with because it was only invented a couple of times. And so many languages have written languages because they saw other languages had written versions and made their own. So be- given that the seed of all this was like four instances. Uh, it's a too small a sample. You know, it might just be random <laughs> that it's right to left or left to right, rather. Um, you know, maybe it's just a historical coincidence. But another idea I have is that if you're writing with ink, because most people are right-handed, the way your hand sort of sits on the page, if you were to write from right to left, your hand would smear the ink, okay? So if you write from left to right, your hand... The, the part of your hand that's touching the paper is always in an area that has no ink. So maybe it was chosen to minimize ink smear and getting your hands dirty. And yet, yes, here's another way in which the world is created for right-handed people. <laughs> yes, that's right. I mean, I, I study calligraphy and, and calligraphy is like a real, it's, I, I, I don't know how left-handed people even do it, right? It's just, it's, it's all made for right-handers. Anyway, everybody, Kim is a Southpaw. And someday, I think we should do an entire episode on handedness. I'm surprised we haven't done it already. Yeah, I, I agree with you. We should. And I should mention that uh, I do, I have done calligraphy. And the only reason I was able to do it is because I retaught myself how to write. Uh, most left, lefties, they actually uh, crouch over their writing and they write from the top. I actually write from the bottom. So I'm not able, I don't have, I don't have. I don't so you do calligraphy left-handed, but you just yeah. position your hand Correct. in a way that doesn't smear the ink. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm going to start preparing for this episode as soon as we're done here, because I think that that is exciting. <laughs> okay, that's yeah. mm-hmm. good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, so let's talk about the future. So let, let me ask you, what direction do you think the future is in? Mm, what do you mean? <laughs> so if, like, if you're to point toward the future, which way would you point? Uh, pointing right now, you can't see, but right in front of me. 
Right. So that's a spatial metaphor, right? There's no real reason for you to think that time is in front of you or behind you, right? Time is not essentially a spatial thing. We just think of it as such. But see, in our language and in our gestures, we refer to time being in front of us, the future being in front of us, and the past being behind us. So we say things like, let's put this behind us. We might say, as the company moves forward uh, and looking back and what's coming up, right? These are all like, we have these up and forward and for the future and back and down and past for the, for the past. Yeah. And when people talk about the past, they'll stick their thumb pointing behind them like, oh, yesterday, right? Gesturing backwards. Yeah. yeah tomorrow. Right. Yeah. And, you know, um, but it's not true for everybody. Right. This is this is in some sense a cultural thing. So there is another culture and they have they speak a language called Amara where this is actually reversed and they refer to the future being behind them in their language and, in you know, uh, not in front of them. What? <laughs> really? Yeah. And yeah, I think the way that that the scholars explain this is that or I'm sorry, where the way the people in the culture explain it is that it seems obvious to them to them that the future or that the future is behind them because you can't see the future and the past is in front of you because you can see it. <laughs> <laughs> that is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. And their gestures reflect that too. So it's the way they talk and, you know, they'll refer to, you know, we'll talk about like, oh, back when I was a kid and they'll they'll put their hand in front of them. Where, where are these? Uh, I've never heard of Amara. Oh, I, do, I don't remember. I don't remember where they are. So now isn't Chinese written top to bottom? Yes. Now, traditionally Chinese is written that way. I think it was the, uh, during the communist revolution, they tried to switch it mm. to uh, going left to right. <laughs> but uh, traditional Chinese is written that way. Um, and if you look at like Chinese characters, um, like in front of the Forbidden City or something like that, you might see four characters. You are supposed to read it from right to left. Hmm. Um, so sometimes it's right to left. Sometimes it's to, uh, top to bottom. Japanese uh, who inherited their writing system from Chinese, they also still write uh, top to bottom. Hmm. Um, and they've done studies with this too. So if you uh, ask Chinese people to respond to things and you have a button where the past is on the bottom and the, and the, uh, like they're pressing buttons and the bottom button is the future and the top button is the past, they have a, a faster responses, right? So, so this is like evidence that they really do think about time moving top to bottom. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, we can do that too, right? Like sometimes if we write like a... Um, you know, in a grant, we might say, well, well, first we'll do this. And then, we'll, you know, we might we will list the things from past to future going down, you know. Yeah. yeah. So it is a little bit flexible. Hmm. And then we also talk about time moving forward, right? Yes, we do. And that that's because of the same spatial metaphor. But all right, here's a question for you. Mm. And this is something we talked about in our uh, episode so long ago on imagining the future. But I'll mention it again because it's one of the coolest things in psychology. <laughs> so if I say... Wednesday's meeting has been moved forward two days. What day is the meeting now? I remember this. Uh, I would say Friday. Oh, You'd say Friday. Okay. Yep. So yep. we can give our listeners a chance to think about this, right? So, okay. Wednesday's meeting has been moved forward two days. Is the meeting now on Monday or is it on Friday? So I would also say it's on Friday, but many people would say it's on Monday. But, okay, I still don't I, <laughs> That to me makes no sense. But if you're saying that the meeting has been moved forward or backward in time, people are going to interpret it different ways? Yeah, that's right. So, and 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 what what what's crazy is that people still use these terms all the time. Like, I'll constantly hear people say, "Oh, we're moving the deadline forward." I'm like, I don't know what I have no idea what you, what you mean. <laughs> you could I just use too that much about psychology. You could use that to your advantage if it's like a grant deadline's been moved forward. You'd be like, "Well, 
I assumed you meant December 2023. Yeah. Yeah. It's like bi-weekly. I don't know why anybody still uses these oh, terms. God. Like bi-weekly is so inherently confusing. Every it's two weeks, people twice a week. It. Come on. Let's yeah, standardize this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you yeah. see somebody say something, t- some deadline or some time has been moved forward or back, you need to ask for clarification. For sure. But anyway, this comes from a metaphor of how we think about time. So I'm going to use a an analogy here. So just... Let's think about water here. So some people feel like they're standing still and that time is kind of flowing over them. Mm. Okay, so that's where time is moving and you're not, right? So I picture somebody standing in a stream and the stream is flowing past them. Okay, so if you're, if this is the way you think about time, then you are sort of static and time is something that's kind of happening to you. Time is passing by you, okay? Um, And, you know, this is reflected in language like when, as the years pass me by or something like this, or, you know, where did the time go? The time is the thing moving, right? So um, that's the time moving metaphor. Okay. So the other way to think about it is that time is the static thing and you are the thing moving through it. Mm. And they're both legitimate because like there is no motion, right? Like time is not something, it's not a spatial thing. We just metaphorically think about it. So there are two ways to do it. So you might imagine this time, like a large body of water, like a shallow still pond, and you are wading through it, right? So this is the ego moving time metaphor mm. where the reason that time is perceived to change is not because time is moving, but you are moving through it. Mm-hmm. Okay? So does this predict whether people will say the new meeting is on Friday or Monday? Yes. So, um, so in one, time is moving, and the other, you are moving. So if you're using the time-moving metaphor, then going forward from Wednesday means the time is moving forward toward you, so Monday is going to reach you faster. Okay. okay. <laughs> and if you're the one moving into the future, then that means the meeting is going to be on Friday because you're, you're the one moving. Okay. This is making my brain hurt. So is this an individual difference, this thing? Like, how, does it, how is this shaped? What, what makes me somebody that thinks it's on Friday versus somebody on Monday? Yeah, I don't know if it's, I don't think it's an individual differences thing so much like there's a bunch of people who are uh, e- ego, ego moving and a bunch of people who are time moving. I think it's, it, we, we do know that there are experiments that show that you can manipulate the metaphor by whatever situation somebody's in. So an example that was done in experiments is if uh, they have people waiting in a very long line. So let's say that you're, you know, in line to watch the new Star Wars movie and you're at the back of the line. Now, as you as everyone knows, when you're at the back of a line, time just seems to take forever and you don't feel like you're making any progress. You're just standing there, you know, and it's like, oh, my God, is this line even moving? And when people are at the back of this line, they feel like time is moving past them because they're not active participants. They're just sitting there waiting. Right. So when you're waiting, when you're waiting, you feel like time is time is the active participant. You just have to wait. You can't do anything about it. Right. So if you ask these people about the Wednesday meeting moving forward, they're more likely to say that the new meetings on a Monday. But now when you get to the front of this long line, you're moving, you know, moving more continuously. It's it's imminent that you're going to get to the front. People feel that they are more active because they're moving. And they're more likely, those people are more likely to say the new meaning is on Friday. So this is like one of the strangest findings. Like if you ask people what it means that the Wednesday meeting has been moved forward, you get different answers if they're at the back of the line or the front of the line. (laughs) Hmm. This is more circumstantial, right? It's depending, like you said, it depends on the situation. And these special metaphors really seem to influence how we understand what people say about time, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So what about the brain? What do we know about how the brain measures time? Admittedly, this is not my area of expertise. I know, I know, I'm pretty predictable. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, there's not just one system. 
Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we have that most people are familiar with is something called the circadian rhythm, which keeps track of day and night. So part of the reason you get tired at night is because your circadian rhythm is informing you that the day is ending. Uh, and that's part of what wakes you up in the morning too. But this rhythm is pretty gross. Like it, it, it keeps track of a 24-hour period, but it really doesn't um, have a sense of hours or minutes. And it can get readjusted by the light, like how much light is in the sky or whatever, which is why you can recover from jet lag. And thank goodness. Can you imagine if like where you were born, you were stuck in that 24 hours? <laughs> well, you couldn't adjust. There are some people who have deficits in their brain that they actually can't adjust to new time. They have like advanced phase or delayed phase sleep disorders. But maybe we'll do a lecture. Uh, a lecture. Oh my gosh, you can tell him. <laughs> we'll do an episode on, professors. on, <laughs> yeah, on <laughs> sleep disorders. Yeah. So those, I guess those people would only travel like in their in their same latitude, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> so because they can't adjust with jet lag. Anyway, so you can't use that to perceive um, like really small time differences. So you know when somebody's talking, for example, you have to to be able to even understand and make sense of what they're saying, and to be able to talk yourself. I mean, like listen to how fast words are coming out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. You need the mind needs some kind of sense of millisecond time differences to understand speech, right? So this shows that, and we can't do that with circadian rhythm, right? So there are several clocks that are sort of, so to speak, they're more metaphorical, but like several things happening in the brain that allow different parts of the brain to keep track of how much time has passed, right? And one's in the striatum. Uh, and as we'll discuss later, we also use uh, our memories as a way to kind of infer how much time uh, has passed. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think the striatum is a new sort of discovery of a time clock in the brain, from my understanding. I yeah. like from the very little work that I've looked at in this place. I do know that the most um, the area of the brain with the greatest number of so-called clock cells, which are the ones that are the the chronometers, they're they're really measuring um, uh, time passing. Uh, and changes in, in the amount of daylight is in uh, the suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in the hypothalamus. Uh, supra meaning it's above chiasmatic, it's above the optic chiasm in, in the brain. So the, the area, like if you can imagine your eyeballs are sending out the visual nerve coming out of the back of the eyeball and it crosses, right? So the left eyeball crosses over to the right side and the right eyeball crosses over to the left. And that's that part where they cross is called the, the optic chiasm. And so there's a population of cells just above that that are, as you can imagine, connected to uh, these these cells as well. So they're literally listening. I shouldn't say listening. Looking? Anyway. Uh, metaphorically listening. Metaphorically <laughs> listening. So, you know, at the back of our eye, the retina, there are specialized cells that are paying attention to the amount of daylight uh, that somebody is exposed to in a given day, right? So, and they're saying, okay, now it's nighttime, uh, daylight is going down. And so they're sending signals to the SCN, that suprachiasmatic nucleus, which then is setting into motion and, and talking to a whole bunch of other circuits in the brain that regulate our circadian rhythms, which makes sense, right? We regulate digestive uh, systems, like appetite, um, like basic bodily functions. We're not getting up in the middle of the night to... to you know, have a bowel movement, uh, sleep, of course, um, uh, heart rate, memory, like everything is being regulated by these, these, uh, SCN, uh, cells. But yeah, so it's there, that the striatum one is a, is a pretty new one. And I do know as well, like, I think it's a bit different when we're talking about circadian rhythm in the brain versus perception of time, which is a bit different. And I think, uh, from what I've read, the perception of time is, 
is almost broadly in the brain. There's like lots of different areas of the brain that can sense the passage of time. And there's apparently people who are like chronically late. Uh, you know, the folks that just can't seem to, to be on time outside of having ADHD. Um, there's some suggestion that there, this is genetic and there's, uh, genes that influence that, those parts of the brain that dictate the passage of time. So they feel like time yeah. is, is going faster. Or slower. And even um, even plants have circadian rhythm. So, you know, yeah. It, yeah. It, it could be that it's beyond even the brain. Like, it's just a very foundational biological thing. Um, you know, and these clocks, uh, What another interesting thing is that um, when people sleep, they have, when they wake up, they can estimate how much time has passed, often within an accuracy of about 15 minutes. Yeah, I notice I can, uh, I can do that. If I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm like, I think it's one o'clock or I think it's three o'clock, even though I've been asleep, Right. I know how much time I, yeah, it's weird. It's weird. But if you're under anesthetic, you can't do that. So if you go under general anesthesia, when you wake up, you kind of have no idea. And so I forget which, which, it was some kind of oscillation or something. I don't know. But, but basically by looking at how anesthesia affects the brain, it also gives clues as to the timekeepers, right? Which parts of the brain are keeping uh, time. Let's talk about how sometimes it feels like time has passed very quickly and other times it feels like it's going really slowly. Like what's going on here? Talk to us about Yeah, that's that. a mystery, right? Because if we have these clocks in our brain and you can tell how much time has passed even when you're asleep, mm -hmm. then why is it that, that depending on what you're doing, some things feel like they take forever and some things take a long time? Uh, part of this is expectation. Like if you tell somebody uh, this is going to only take 10 minutes and it takes an hour, you're like, really upset <laughs> but other times you see, if you're told it takes two hours and then it takes an hour and a half you're really happy <laughs> so there's like expectation here but uh it's complicated um uh because there's a difference there's a difference between how long you estimate something takes while it's happening okay versus how long you think it took when you're reflecting on how long it took in the past okay and the, the, when i say there's a difference i mean like it kind of flip-flops here so this prospective time estimation is est is how you estimate time for something passing right now. So if I give a tone and I say, how long is this tone going to last? Uh, but when you think back to some event in the past, like how long did you spend eating dinner last night or something, then you're using what's called retrospective time estimation. When you're really bored, for example, time t seems to take forever, right? And that's, uh, that is the yeah. prospective time estimation. Yeah, it's like waiting in line. It feels like 20 minutes, but it might actually be only three minutes, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes, sometimes you hear people like actually correcting themselves, like, "Well, you know, it seemed like forever, but I'm sure it was you know, a short time." But they, the, the, it's the feeling, right? Um, and generally, when this happens in the future, though, when you use retrospective and you look back on it, it actually feels like it takes less time, not more. Really? Yeah. So, so this is the thing: when time seems to go slowly in the moment, in the in the future, when you look back on it, it seems to fly by. Uh, and this is also this isn't just boredom; it also happens with uh, it's just a symptom of ADHD. Uh, when you're feeling depressed, being disturbed by something, uh, feeling rejected socially, being afraid, all those things can cause this weird dilation of it feels slow in the moment, but in retrospect, it seems like it went by quickly. Yeah, like I've heard uh, in highly stressful circumstances, people feel like time slows down, right? And, and I guess it's the opposite too, right? When time slows down when you're feeling depressed, right? Right, but time flies when you're having fun, right? Yeah, time flies when you're having fun, but also like highly stressful, traumatic instances. People will say that time kind of stretches. They'll like have this perception of time dilating. So why does this happen? Like why, 
you know, why do we have these different perceptions of time, like when we're depressed or when we're we're feeling really good and happy? So it might be it might have something to do with one of the major ways that we estimate time, and that is by the number of new memories we lay down during the time in question. And generally, the more new things we see and the more memories we make, uh, the longer we estimate that amount of time to be. So that's why when you're going on a road trip and you're driving somewhere new, the ride going seems to take so much longer than the trip home, right? Yes, right, right. So what's going on there? Think about it in terms of memories. When you're driving to a new place, you're seeing all these new landmarks and you're putting them in memory. Oh, there's this store and then there's this you know big tree and the guy on the porch or whatever. And they're all put into memory but on the way home, you, you're seeing them again. So those memories are being reactivated. They're not really being generated. So it's, it's almost like less happened on the way home, <laughs> right? Less to take note of, less to remember. You're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, 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 and that. You've seen it all before. So your mind compresses it, and it feels like, oh, my God, that, that, that was, it felt so much of a shorter time. And distance, too. People often it's like, God, it seems like the ride there was, it took longer, and it, and it was longer, than the ride home. And it's the anticipation, I'm sure, of something new, right? That you're like really looking forward to it versus going home. Ugh, the drudgery of going back home. That's interesting. I don't you know? know. Because uh, if you're going somewhere to, that you dread, I wonder if you'd get the same thing. Like if you're going in for a very painful procedure, right? Would that affect? I don't know if anyone's looking hmm. at that. Cool. Hmm. Next PhD thesis. And <laughs> also like it's seeing, you hear about how people say time speeds up as you age, I've, I've certainly ex experienced this. Have you? Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it is. And, you know, one of the joys of being with children is that everything is new to them, right? They, they, don't, they haven't seen anything. <laughs> so they see situations for the first time much more frequently than adults do, right? So adults already have a very complex bunch of categories, and they classify most of what they see. They're like, oh, yeah, another building. Oh, yeah, truck. Oh, yeah, dog. And they don't even, they barely take notice of it. But, you know, you're hanging out with a kid and they're like, look, mom, a dog. And you look and it's just some normal brown dog. But to <laughs> the kid, it's, it's something interesting because, you know, they're, they're, it's new to them and, and it's sort of delightful. Uh, but for adults, it's like nothing surprises us, right? So our minds are hungry for new information. And when we see something that we can just quickly classify, we just pass over it. We don't bother to put a lot of attention to it. We don't remember it very well. Uh, it feels very well understood. Mm -hmm. So... We don't lay down as many new memories in a given day as a child, right? Yeah, that's that's the consequence there. So one reason our childhood, that's one reason why our childhood seems to feel like it lasts forever, right? Think about when you were a kid, how long summer vacation felt. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It was just like, you're, yeah, just like it was endless summer as the long Beach Boys album says, summer right? days. Mm -hmm. And now when we look at it, it's like, it was only two months? Like, really? Summer vacation was two months? Like, it's, it's, yeah. it's unbelievable. It's, I had a totally different perspective when I was a kid. And then university, you know, when I look back at my university, it was like, a, it felt like a lifetime, you know? And now I see students come and go in four years. I've, yeah, I, you blink and you miss them. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me. I, I look at these students in their classes and I see them come and go and I'm like, God, that really felt like nothing to me. Mm -hmm. And to them, they were, they're laying down a very formative part of their life that's going to feel like it lasted a really, really long time. Uh, so, you know, I think that's how I think this is a big part of why. And I think it's particularly bad also because, I mean, more more things change every year when you're young. Your your body's changing. You're learning stuff. You're changing schools. You're doing this. And a lot of people, when they become adults, they'll spend years working at a job. Maybe they've got a partner they're very used to. Uh, less is changing. And the more your life is routine, when you look back on it, the more it's going to feel like it flew by. Because your mind just sort of compresses it. And you're like, well, not much happened. 
And it feels like not much time has passed. Okay, this is depressing. So on that note, <laughs> Jim, you are the king of hacks. Talk to talk to us. Can you hack your life to feel like it's going by slower, it's longer, you know? Hack your life to make it feel like it's longer. Mm -hmm. I mean. Well, if you do more new things, could you feel like your life was longer in the same amount of time passing? Yeah, I think that's possible. I do think that's possible. So I'll give an example. Like I'm, you know, an adult now and time seems to be flying by. But I went a couple of years ago on a sabbatical in North Carolina. So I went there with my wife and we lived there for six months. But when I think about that time, it does feel a lot longer than six months. Like it feels longer than uh, some random six month period in Ottawa in the years before that. Right. And uh, but that's because, you know, every six months in Ottawa, there's just not that much to distinguish it. I'm still living in the same house. I'm teaching my classes. I'm, you know, doing my lab meetings. It works for me, but it's not a whole lot of new stuff. But in North Carolina, I was meeting all new people, living in a new place, shopping at new stores, finding places to go, good restaurants. And so in retrospect, the whole time stretches out. So maybe we should be doing more of that. Going to North Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone should go to North Carolina as a solution. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Episode. There we go. <clears throat> yeah, variety. Yeah, it's the spice of life and all that. But I, I do think there's a downside to novelty and, and trying to hack your life this way. Okay. How? What do you mean? So let's, let's like look at breakfast. Okay. So like many people, I have the same thing for breakfast every day. I know your breakfast. It's a boiled egg, a boiled egg, right? And soy sauce. Yeah. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> and salad. Cause you were trying to Im increase your greens intake. Yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. if you listen to the, uh, I think the habit episode, um, talk about how morning's a good time to change habits. So I was, wanted to get more vegetables. So I eat salad every morning. Um, but so, so it's good for my health, and I think it's delicious. I enjoy it every morning. But the result is that I basically have no memory of individual episodes of breakfast. Like, I can't recall, oh, God, remember that breakfast I had a week and a half ago where the egg was on that side of the plate? Like, you just don't, you know, it, it's, it's not memorable. So those memories kind of merge into one general, like, what I have for breakfast memory rather than a whole bunch of individual memories where if, like, I went out for pancakes one day, well, the other day, I just, I... Uh, I had a medical procedure. I had to fast for a day. And so when I got back, I had a big breakfast with like sausage and eggs and toast and everything at, at Gabriel. And I remember that because it's different, you know, so, but so, so the, the, the benefit is I'm, I'm, I'm having good nutrition, but it does feel like my life's a little shorter, but, because of it. but like where I, I'm still like, what's, you know, where's the downside to novelty? Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's value in routine. Okay. You know, it takes it takes mental resources to choose something new for breakfast every morning. Now, I know the ego depletion literature has been criticized a lot in the wake of the replication crisis, but I I still can't help but think that there's something to it. I mean, I think we all feel that we get fatigued by choices and having to constantly choose what am I going to have for breakfast tomorrow morning? I have to make sure I shop to get it. What am I going to wear? Like uh, Steve Jobs, he wore the same exact thing every day just to... He's like, I have more important things to worry about. I don't need to be taxing my mind with picking what to wear every day. So we bought all black turtlenecks, black pants. That is depressing. Well, no, okay, everybody, you can't see Kim. I encourage everybody to Google Kim Hellemans and you'll see the outfit she wears. That's unfortunately something that doesn't really translate well to audio. She uh, uh, dresses great uh, all the time. Um, and if you get joy out of that, that's wonderful. Um, but, you know, I do th I do think that the more choices you make in the day, you, it does mentally fatigue you. 
It can. I, I guess maybe it depends on the choice and indivi- like maybe some individual differences, right? Maybe some people take pleasure in choosing a fantastic breakfast every morning, but maybe some people don't, right? So maybe there is a little bit of, you know. I think, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I choose, you know, I basically choose a different dinner every night. So it's, it's uh, I, I you know, I totally get it. But I, I guess you should pick carefully because if you try to make every single thing new every single day, um, then, you you know, it's, it's going to be very taxing, right? Uh, I wouldn't recommend trying to increase variety in every aspect of your life all the time simply to make you feel like you're living subjectively longer because <laughs> there's a, there's a, a uh, questionable benefit to a a sort of exhausted a, a long life of exhausting uh, endless choices. <laughs> but the other thing is that the more variety you put in, the more categories and more memories you're making, and the less things will seem new. So it's kind of you're kind of it's kind of a weird weird thing about like chasing chasing novelty is like you know you might like oh listen to this kind of music I'm going to see this crazy thea- like experimental theater. But the thing is, is that after you do that for several years, it's really hard to find things that feel new, you know? And so you kind of exhaust your your capacity to feel new things. This is, I know this is going to sound weird, but when I think about radical life extension and, you know, the possibility of people living like 300 years, I'm like, we really did, you know, our, maybe our minds will just get so crowded that we'll just be incredibly bored, <laughs> you know? Wow. So uh, I, think, yeah. I think that, like, you know, save variety for the things that you think are particularly boring Save choice making for things that you enjoy choosing. Think, pick things that are meaningful, meaningful to you. But I wouldn't just arbitrarily add novelty into your life merely to make it feel like it lasted longer. This is why I always learn so much from you, Jim. So time flies when you're having fun or not laying down a bunch of new memories, right? Yes, I think that's a that's a good take home. So, you know, how long have we been talking here today, Kim? Feels like minutes. No, lots of new information. So it will feel longer, but lots of fun, which will make it feel shorter. Mixed bag. (laughs) Minding the Brain is edited by Mike Contos and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. Theme music for Minding the Brain is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.